Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. Hey, everybody. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Yeah, or as the case may be, Sandman, Preacher, and today, Hellblazer. Sure, yeah. And today we're covering issues number 27 and 28. That's right. Now, these are just a little piece of the story arc called The Family Man. Previously on Hellblazer, John Constantine, sneaky wizard, had been basically squatting in a friend's house. His friend was a dealer in all things, including information and cocaine and information. Cocaine, information, information about cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) key cocaine locations (laughs) if you give me five quid i'll tell you whether cocaine's good for you okay here you go not mate (laughs) (laughs) okay so (laughs) john had completed a transaction with a seemingly a charming old man who turned out to be a charming old serial killer man who kills whole families i was never as charmed by that old man as you guys were but whatever. <laughs> I thought he was supposed to come off charming. You can read most of his dialogue as sinister, too. It's, right. it's kind of up to interpretation. But, so yeah, John is responsible for the Lucases of Dogthorpe being brutally murdered. And he sort of decided to do something about it, but then John Constantine happened, and he's been procrastinating ever since. Right. Okay, so we pick up here in the middle of a couple of standalone issues before we resume the Family Man story in 28. Yeah, the first issue that we're covering today is very standalone, and the second issue that we'll be covering is not so much. All right. So this is Hellblazer issue number 27, Hold Me, written by Neil Gaiman with art by Dave McKeon. Um, whoa, whoa, what? (laughs) Yeah, so Neil Gaiman is the writer of Sandman, another of our flagship series, and Dave McKeon has been responsible for pretty much all of the Sandman and Hellblazer covers. Yeah, that's right. Now, at this point, Sandman was an ongoing concern already. Yeah, that's right. Do you know any of the background of how Neil Gaiman came to write this issue? Can't say that I do. Typical. (laughs) Do you? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) I mean, he was certainly, like, up and coming as a writer at DC, and... And it makes sense that he would come in for a guest spot on what was at the time one of their best adult-oriented supernatural comics. Probably their best-selling mature reader's book. Yeah. Yeah, I want to also point out that the colors in this issue are credited to Dave McKeon and Danny Vazo. We've seen Daniel Vazo colors before. I think this is the first time we've seen him credited as Danny. That's true. And also I wonder if that's for the trade or if it's like that in the original edition. Yeah, that's a good question. I believe that some of the Sandman issues that we covered, uh, they were Robbie Bush colors originally, and they were recolored by Daniel Vazo for the trade. Yeah. The colors in this book are extraordinarily muted. There's a lot of black and dim light and blues and the like in this book. Yeah, although we open on a blue heart. That's what's on the cover. And it's a very blue heart. Kind of cool, but not muted, I would say. Yeah. And what looks like John Constantine's face inside. Yes. Below that, we have the text, hold me, in all lowercase. And behind that, there appear to be two people in an embrace in the background. Maybe just one person embracing himself. Ah, yes. So we open on the street, specifically under a bridge. Right, here we have three homeless people chased out from under the bridge by the old Bill. The old Bill is the Bill, which is to say the cops. These three are Fat Ronnie, Sylvia, and Jacko. I may have used a dangling modifier there. Only Ronnie is fat. (laughs) Fat Ronnie and Sylvia. Fat, Fat Ronnie, Fat Sylvia, Fat Jacko. Fat Jacko. Right. Uh, Well, it's lean times for Fat Ronnie uh, and Sylvia and Jacko. They see something about getting hosed. Oh, yeah, it says the old Bill came around with their bloody hoses. So if if they don't fuck off out from under this bridge, the cops are going to hose them down. Or maybe they did anyway. We don't know. Right, so Fat Ronnie has an idea for a warm place to stay. They sneak into an abandoned estate, and they hide out on the fourth floor. Yeah, now by an estate, we mean public housing. Right, a tenement, basically. 
Yeah, not like a stately Wayne Manor. Right, I guess that's a fair point. Not, not like the estate from Call of Duty. No light or power, no food. Still, somewhere to be, somewhere to hide until things got warmer. It was so very cold that spring. And this is a repeated line, it was so very cold that spring. Across the right side of this double-page spread, we see Jacko, arms wrapped around himself. Yeah, and this page has, like, just shocking amounts of pure white on it, and it really gives you a strong impression of the cold. Inside the apartment, Fat Ronnie and Sylvia wrapped a curtain around themselves and held each other for warmth. Jacko, who is here identifiable by a big scraggly black beard, knew that this wasn't enough. And there was no one to hold Jacko anyway. He had to get away. He had to hide. He had to get warm. We are told that he's hiding as we see him simply vanish from sight, the newspapers he's thrown over himself floating to the floor. It was so cold that spring. It also says this was his DOS, which is to say a place where someone sleeps rough, and he was buggered if anyone was going to take it away from him. Did you take that to mean that he killed Fat Ronnie and Sylvia? Not at all. I guess I thought that, you know, his DOS was where he is in the apartment and Fat Ronnie and Sylvia's DOS was, you know, three feet down. Okay. Well, fair enough. Yeah, so he just vanishes. And we can assume this is sometime later, even though it's the very next panel. John Constantine calls for a taxi. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we're soon told that it's Autumn now. Right, Autumn, which John likes. He narrates that there seem to be no beautiful women around in Autumn. <laughs> yeah, I was chatting to this cab driver the other day. He said he thought the pretty ones in the summer dresses were like butterflies. He said when it gets cold, they go off and hibernate in empty rooms. suppose he must have been a frustrated poet. Or a horror writer. Today's cabbie, by contrast, seems to be a National Front recruiter. Yeah, and this is something we get a couple of allusions to throughout this issue. So the National Front is a far-right political party in the United Kingdom known for ethnic nationalist views. Mm. Yeah, and that's the impression that we get from John as well, as the cabbie starts to tell what he calls a terrific racist joke. John tells him to stop the cab and gets out. Don't I get a tip? Sure, it's this. Get a new mind. The one you've got is narrow and full of crap. Thank you, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> it's a great line. I also like the racist cab driver is carrying on about one ethnic group or another. And he says, well, I mean, they're not like us, are they? Stands to reason. And John mutters, they're certainly not like you. <laughs> Well, so John walks the rest of the way. We learn that he's going to a party, a get-together of Raymond's friends, remembering him on the one-year anniversary of his death, which occurred more than 12 issues ago in Hellblazer number 7. Right. Ray was beaten to death by... The Resurrection Crusaders. The Resurrection Crusaders. That was what their name was. The super-Christians who were going to use Zed to rebirth Jesus or something. Yeah. As he's walking, a homeless man approaches John and asks for a cigarette. You dawsing out here, then? Mm, there's quite a few of us around here. It was okay in the summer, but I hate the cold. Yeah? Yes, and drunk yuppies. A couple of them worked me over the other night. I'm sorry. Me too. Seems like there didn't used to be so many homeless on the streets. I gave him a quid and some cigarettes, and he seemed pathetically grateful. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? John seems kind of compassionate here, but also kind of dismissive. Like, he wants to be the good guy, but he doesn't care all that much? Yeah, I don't know. I guess a lot depends on the reading of Breaks Your Heart, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you think that he's being sardonic. Right, right. When he says that. I don't know, I read it as pretty genuine, considering that he gave the guy money and a handful of cigarettes, which is more than most people would probably do. True, true. It is, I guess, in keeping with his character as we've seen it, particularly in the Horus story in Antarctica, that he's he's sympathetic to people's various plights, especially the plight of the working class or the poor, but he's also burnt out. Mm -hmm. He cares enough to be a pessimist, but cynicism leaves him cold. So he goes up to the party where he is introduced to Anthea. That's right. The host of the party introduces him to Anthea, and she and John find a corner to chat. He narrates that he doesn't enjoy parties, people working too hard to have fun. And that it didn't used to take him quite so much effort. He also apologizes in his mind to Ray, presumably for getting him killed. Somewhere else in London, a woman 
wearing a bathrobe and a towel in her hair, is watching television. I think it's kind of a cute detail that there's this, like, palmy kind of frondy fern plant over here. <laughs> oh, okay. Kind of a, a warm weather plant. Because it suggests warmth, which isn't really there. Yeah. Yeah. It also just seems like a... To me, it's a very early 90s kind of decorative touch. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like people used to have those in Michigan in the early 90s, too. <laughs> like palmy plants. In, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, you know, houses in the middle of fucking Michigan. Yeah. Right. So this young girl calls to her mother that there's a smelly man in her room. She responds that there's nobody in the bedroom. Right, she doesn't believe at first, but indeed the smelly man comes shambling out of the bedroom. Is that Jacko? It appears to be. <sighs> Hold me. No, please. Jacko comes up and hugs the mother, and she freezes to death. Yeah, and then it looks like she falls on something and gets impaled. You see that? I don't see that. I see her falling over. Oh, I see. see. That's just the sleeve of the robe. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and the smelly man apparently vanishes. We overhear, as we, you know, zoom out to establishing shot of the tenement, we overhear the little girl finding the mother's body, but there's no sign of the smelly man when she comes into the room. Right. Or at least she doesn't react to him in any way. Right. I also want to point out there's a Gaiman-esque surprised utterance here when she... First sees him, the mother says, Ah! Spelled A-A. My note on this page was Jacko's Bacco. <laughs> Would you say that Jacko is wacko? No, he's, his needs are perfectly understandable. Oh, fair enough. Meanwhile, John is still talking to Anthea. She seems nice, he says, but something rings false. Yeah, John is talking about how he got an AIDS test because it was only sensible. He might have a lot of stuff in his blood, but HIV antibodies aren't one of them. Right. A lot of weird stuff in me blood, he says, which he's referring to the demon blood that he obtained in Hellblazer number eight. Yeah. Anthea says that she doesn't feel well and asks John to walk her home. Yeah, she's coming on pretty strong, isn't she? You don't have AIDS? Well, in that case, heaven or hell, let's rock. So John says, sure, and they, uh... Fuck off from the party. Yeah, Anthea is shaping up to be another in a long line of John Constantine characters who are women who only exist to desire him sexually. Right, the inexplicably hyper-interested one-shot woman character. Right. I've lost count of them at this point. No points for guessing that Anthea lives in a tower estate, which looks very familiar from the last page. On their way up... She talks about how she runs a homeless shelter. Yeah, she says she likes the work, but she doesn't seem to think it does much lasting good. Meanwhile, they also mentioned that the elevator in the building has to be repainted every day because of National Front Graffiti. Once a week. Oh, I'm sorry, once a week, yes. Yeah, but it's it's already filled with National Front Graffiti again. In the upstairs hall, John notices a smell. Anthea says he doesn't want to know, then decides that he does, remembering that he has... A nose for the nasty, she says. The flats on this side have been empty for almost a year. The council's meant to be doing them up. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Six months ago, the smell started. Got worse and worse. We thought maybe it was a dead dog or cat. Sarah and I phoned the police. That's the mark Sarah made on the door where it seemed to be coming from. The door has a large black X on it. They broke in. Two dead tramps underneath a curtain. Must have been there for months. Police had to scrape them up from the carpet, take them out in plastic bags. Lots of plastic bags. Did that make sense to you? Is it just that the bodies were so decayed by that Yeah, the point? bodies were badly decomposed. So they had been there all summer and were in pieces. I guess you could read that maybe Jacko had murdered them, and that's why they were in a lot of pieces? I didn't pick that up, but... It's not super clear. But yeah, I don't know. She doesn't seem to be... Maybe she's alluding to the fact that there's a murder, but... Her point in saying all this doesn't seem to be that there was some grisly murder. It seems to just be, you know, isn't it a shame, the homeless situation. Yeah, right. Because that's tied to her work, what yeah. she was discussing. Yeah, little detail on the bottom of this page in the very last panel. We can see Jacko fade into being watching them. They get into the flat and John and Anthea continue chatting. She's not feeling sick anymore. How about that? 
John asks about the Sarah that Anthea mentioned in her story. Anthea says Sarah's her flatmate and is out tonight. Give us a kid, she says. What? I said give us a kiss. She also comments that the music isn't very smoochy, but it's about to get smoochier. I thought was pretty funny, and apparently John did too. Now the song is Tonight, written by David Bowie and Iggy Pop, which appeared on Iggy Pop's 1977 album Lost for Life and Bowie's 1984 album Tonight. This can be identified as the Iggy Pop version thanks to the spoken word intro, which we can overhear in the panels, addressed to a dying lover, which Bowie omitted from his version. Makes it a much grimmer song. You know, that's not the only song that David Bowie and Iggy Pop both recorded. They also both have versions of China Girl. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Bowie's is on Let's Dance, and Iggy Pop's is on The Idiot. So, sometime collaborators. Yes. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure David Bowie produced that Iggy Pop record. Oh, cool. As John thinks about Anthea and her flatmate Sarah, his mind clicks, and we get a flashback of Ray being snarky about the two of them. Sarah and Anthea were over this morning, utterly sweet and inseparable as always. Sometimes I think they'd just like to crawl inside each other, just vanish up each other's mm-hmm, you knows. Aren't I awful? Hang on, you're Anthea, Ray's friend of Sarah and Anthea. You're a lesbian. Oh dear. <laughs> Yeah, John is leaping to a conclusion here. Anthea could just be a bisexual person who wants to cheat on her significant other. But in this case, it seems he called it right. Well, you see, me and Sarah talked it over because we felt it was time to have a baby, and I wanted to bear it. But you can't do it on your own, can you? In the old days, it was simple. You'd just find a nice gay guy and a warm syringe. But these days, well, what with everything, we thought probably safest not to. Let's not mince words here. What Anthea is saying is that they didn't want to use a gay man because they're worried about AIDS. Yeah, exactly. And that's presumably why the conversation ended up in did John get tested back at the party. Right. Yeah. In any case, I would say that her and John are both being kind of shitty in this scene. Yeah, I think that's fair. Now this pushes exactly the wrong buttons with John, who puts out his smoke and gets his coat. What is it with you people? Do I have some kind of sign on my back? Walking sperm bank withdrawals welcome. Yeah, he says, first Alec and Abby and now you. That is a reference to the Swamp Thing crossover that we covered in episode I don't know what, but I'll look it up for the show notes. Adoracion de la Terre. Yeah, Hellblazer number 10, in which John had been possessed by Swamp Thing for the purpose of making a baby with his wife, Abby Holland. He doesn't mention here the climax of... <laughs> fuck me. <laughs> doesn't mention here the resolution of... <laughs> of the fear machine, in which he was used in a similar fashion by Zed. Yeah, and also he is perhaps feeling a little guilty for the way that he similarly used Zed to deal with the Nurgle situation. Right. So he's hurt, he feels used, and his masculine pride is trashed. You could have bloody asked, you know, that's all. You could have bloody asked. And he walks out. So it's at this point that he runs into Shona, that is, the daughter of the woman who just got hugged to death in the flat with the palm tree. Yeah, he gets the story from her, and they set off together to investigate. My name's John, Shona. Suppose you show me where you live, eh? We'll go and see what's wrong with your mum. Okay, John. I got a big teddy bear. Okay. I don't understand the context of that remark. Well, it's a little kid non sequitur. Maybe she thinks he'd be interested in seeing the big teddy bear while he's over. Or maybe she thinks it'll help her mom in some way. John finds the body. He judges she's been dead only a few hours, but the body is unnaturally cold. Has she gone to the baby Jesus? Something like that, love. Something like that. He turns up back at Anthea's, and she tells him to sod off, to which he just replies, nah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good comeback. <laughs> nah. Nah. <laughs> Someone tells you to fuck off, just nah. <laughs> I thought about it. Thought about it, don't feel like it. So, John leaves Shona in the care of Anthea for the moment. I've got a present for you. She's not a blonde, and I don't know how long you get to keep her. 
He persuades Anthea to wait half an hour before calling the police and the ambulance and takes off back to the haunted apartment. Anthea says, But shouldn't I call an ambulance now if her mother's ill? Her mom's dead, Anthea, not sick. It won't make any difference. Half an hour. We see John's lock-picking skills on display. Yeah, he actually doesn't go to Shona's flat. He heads into the flat where the tramps died. You know, I never met a padlock I couldn't open with five minutes and a bent paperclip. Or five seconds and a sledgehammer. But you take what you can get, don't you? He argues with himself about getting involved. What am I trying to prove? John Constantine, you can be a real prat sometimes. It's unnaturally cold in the apartment. Right, in a full-page spread, Jacko appears and says, Hold me. Oh, great. Dead of the living night. Night of the living dead. Whatever. That's kind of like the pun that he used in the Dr. Destiny issue of Sandman. Beware the Ides of March. Beware the March of Ideas. Oh, right. So, yeah, this is a full page of the Hold Me guy looking proper scraggly. And... He's also, I mean, he's just a field of black, you know? It's its like the cold in him is so deep and so dark. Right, right, just like hands and, and what we can see of his face behind his scraggly beard and hair, like the demon bear almost. Yeah. Yeah, this art by Dave McKeon is kind of Sienkiewicz-like, although maybe not quite as kinetic. Right. A lot of use of darkness and negative space, a lot of blurred lines, blurred edges of forms. So John asks his name, which seems to be a good idea, because Jacko tells him and says that nobody has cared. Hold you, you poor dead bastard. All right. They hug, and John adds, You're freezing cold and you smell like a rotten abattoir, mate. Must be hell being dead. And as they embrace, the man once again just vanishes. Not so cold. Warm. Thank you. Ah! Ah! Ah, Christ. All he wanted, John thinks, was for someone to care about him. When we hold each other in the darkness, it doesn't make the darkness go away. The bad things are still out there. The nightmares are still walking. When we hold each other, we feel not safe, but better. It's all right, we whisper. I'm here. I love you. And we lie. I'll never leave you. For just a moment or two, the darkness doesn't seem so bad when we hold each other. He goes back to Anthea and repeats Jacko's request. Just hold me, he says. And what do you see here on the last panel? It's like a staticky TV image of Jacko, right? Yeah, that's what I thought it was too. And I guess it's left somewhat ambiguous whether John gave Anthea what she wanted. Oh yeah, I suppose that could be. I suppose that could be. I mean, I guess there's like an orphaned child in the apartment, so it's very unlikely. So, did you find this issue and this last page in particular to be a little bit preachy with the message of consciousness about homelessness? You know, that's not even an aspect which occurred to me. I mean, obviously, like, obviously social engagement is a noted aspect of the Hellblazer series. Yeah. And I think there's even a quote on the back of the first trade in which Neil Gaiman praises it for exactly that. Right. That's one of the things we like about Jamie Delano when he's not too preachy about it. Yeah, so I think that that's very much within the flavor that Neil Gaiman was going for here. I can't say that preachiness is something that bothered me about this story. Okay. The story did strike me as kind of thin. Yeah, definitely a little bit thin and kind of confusing at points. Uh, what struck you as confusing? Well, like the timeline of things. We couldn't figure out whether Jacko murdered the other homeless people or not. True. Stuff like that. It seemed to me that the two stories don't connect all that well thematically. It's not like John rejected a sincere attempt at human connection by Anthea. She was using him for his sperm and not even being honest about it. Right. So so when he goes back, oh, she just wants me to care. Well, that's not what she wanted at all. <laughs> and so the ending doesn't seem to fit the rest of the story. I'll also say that while John solving supernatural problems through, like, incredibly simple, even lazy methods is typical Hellblazer, the supernatural story here felt almost like an afterthought. Yeah, it does kind of seem as if, you know, when he embraces this guy, rather than being chilled to death, 
as Shona's mother was, mm-hmm. he manages to dissipate, you know, the unrestful ghost just because he knows it's a ghost, just because he happens to give a crap about the guy. I'm not sure. Yeah, we don't get a lot on the rules. <laughs> He's obviously able to tell that it's a ghost, and I guess he showed more concern than pretty much anybody else. Yeah, maybe they're leaving it open to interpretation. I mean, I think the point is that he solved the problem with, like, a little human compassion. But yeah, I see what you're saying, too. It's just one hug from the ice ghost killed somebody, and the very next one cured the ice ghost. Right. I wonder if this issue would have been better if it only had the interpersonal story. John's relationship to gay culture in the late 80s, early 90s London might be interesting enough to justify a full issue, especially since what happens with Anthea resonates with what else has been going on in the book. Yeah, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more of that. I also would have liked to have seen a little bit more consciousness from both Anthea and John. I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit presentist. Yeah. And in the early 90s, their attitudes were considered to be about as enlightened as anyone. But... Well, but if Anthea's going to go up to people and ask them if they've been tested for AIDS, there's no reason that that a gay man in a warm syringe wouldn't work afterwards. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of my point. Is like she doesn't she doesn't want to use a, a gay man anymore because of the AIDS crisis. That's not super compassionate of her, <laughs> right? You know, she's just turning to straight men, or she understands she perceives John as straight. Yeah. In any case, and John is also being kind of kind of shitty by just like concluding, oh, you're in a relationship with a woman that makes you a lesbian that means that your attempt to hit on me is insincere yeah and it's like that's not really how the spectrum of human sexuality works right so yeah i think maybe with no supernatural story this would have been something of an outlier of a hellblazer issue but it also might have engaged with this story a little better right i thought the art was great and i thought neil gaiman was very good at writing john constantine's voice Mm, that's yeah that's a good point this really reminded me of the art in Serious House on Serious Earth. That's an interesting point. It didn't bother me, so I guess it didn't really remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> Dave McKeon doesn't draw a lot of a lot of internal comic books. Um, a lot of interior art. Right, exactly. He's more well-known as a cover artist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that brings us to Hellblazer number 28, Thicker Than Water. Written by Jamie Delano, with art by Ron Tyner and Kevin Walker. And the colors in this issue are by Tom Zuiko. The cover is by Kent Williams. We see hands holding a bunch of toys. All are headless, except for the John Constantine doll. This is a pretty cool cover. Yeah, I liked it. We open on a keyhole, through which we can see a partially undressed man and woman sleeping together. Then the person looking through the keyhole opens the door. It's a kid in blue pajamas. The family man, as a child. Samuel. Yeah, he murders his father with an axe? That is a hammer. Oh, yes it is. This is George. uh, Unclear if he's a father or a stepfather, but yeah, he kills his father. You're so beautiful, mother. I wish I didn't have to love you. Half awake, his mother doesn't realize George is dead. She thinks Samuel just had a bad dream and sends him back to bed with a kiss. And then he kills her with the hammer as well. That's right, mother. A bad dream, that's all. It's over now. Good night. I love you. And then, as he goes to leave the room, Constantine comes through the door with a hangman's noose. It's not his fault, Samuel says. They should have come home on time. Please, I'm all alone now. I wrote down that I'm impressed with the speed of the UK justice system. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just waiting in the door with the noose. You fucked up. (laughs) You done fucked up, kid. The family man wakes from this nightmare, now an old man, but with similar blue pajamas, which is a cool bit of connective tissue. (laughs) Yeah, he's wearing the same pajamas, and uh, apparently he was sleeping in an old folks' home. Right. You learn his name is Samuel Morris. He lives in an old folks' home. This kindly orderly says he was shouting in his sleep and has brought him a cup of tea. Thank you, Betty. You're very kind. Now we get three panels of narration over black, the narrator seemingly trapped in a coffin? This is John. He wakes up in a shithole apartment, woken by a knock on the door. Ah, shit! Nightmare! I'm not supposed to have them anymore. That is a reference to Sandman number three. 
Yes, it is. At the door is Lou Cass from Houndstown with his family. All of their throats are slashed. We couldn't think of anywhere else to go. You see, our house is all full of blood and policemen now. Go! Go away! Get out of here! It's only fair they stay with Constantine, Lou says, since he's the one who sent him. Who? You know who, Mr. Constantine. Don't worry, we're not going to sue you or anything. And the mother hands Constantine the baby. Don't spill her, she's still got some blood left. You don't want to stain your lovely clothes. Right, John is wearing pure white in this scene. And this is our title page. Thicker than water, we are told that the title is. And they cast really long shadows on the wall. Yeah, and the baby being spilled is a reference also to the sippy cup full of baby's blood that John had in Jerry's house. Yes, the artifact that had been delivered to him by the family man for Jerry's contact who's collecting serial killer memorabilia. Yeah, in Hellblazer number 24, was it? It is 24. Back in the old folks' home, Mr. Morris is being introduced to the family of Miss Etheridge. Mrs. Etheridge. Right, he's just kind of amiably listening as she shows him her photo albums. Then his cab arrives, and he's moving out. Goodbye, Mrs. Etheridge. Betty, Norma, I'll miss you all. You've been like family to me. He gives an excuse that he's going to stay with his sister in Brighton, but they know that that's not true. Such a nice old gentleman. He was a policeman, you know. Yes, but I didn't know he had a sister. According to the next of kin list, he hasn't. Idiots. Stupid cattle. Shit people. And as he gets in the cab, we learn he's not going to Brighton, but to Northampton. Back at John's place, he's thinking over the dream he just had. It's been three months, and he hasn't done anything about the family man. The dream was brutally obvious. Lucas. Lucas. Houndstown. Dogthorpe. The Lucas family from Dogthorpe, which is where he accidentally sent the family man. And yeah, then he abrades himself a bit for not doing anything about it for three months, which, good call, John. You really fucked up on that one. <laughs> yeah. You were being an asshole on that one. Why am I scared? Because he's old and he's been killing people for years? No, it's because I liked him. Yeah, there's some wonderful Delano purple prose on the lower right panel here. Murder may be a virus carried by us all, just waiting for one mutating photon to goad it into life. Yeah, he seems to be deciding here that he doesn't want to kill the family man, but wants to find a way to cure him. Yeah, he seems to feel that what was scary about the family man is that, like, he imagined himself becoming the family man. Oh, He so liked him, he could sympathize with him. So maybe he's not trying to cure the family man per se, but just trying to understand him better so that he doesn't worry about turning into him. Right, and his war with the family man will be sort of exorcising a personal demon as well. Although we'll see how that goes for him. Now, at the pub, the family man meets up with an old contact of his. We see that he was indeed on the police force, and now he has an insider into their investigation of him. Yeah, and in his monologue here, he thinks how his rule is to kill all witnesses, and he should have killed Constantine. A dream of mother was a danger dream. Makes about as much sense as killing Jerry, which he never did. That's a good point. <laughs> you are still group coordinator on the Family Man Circus? For my sins, yes. Christ, I've seen the work of some bastards in my time, but this one's in a league of his own. It's the kids. For a moment, they always look like your own. Really? But of course, you never had any family, did you? Lucky, really. Kids are murder. Sorry, bad joke. No progress, then? All blind alleys. The bastard may as well be an alien for all the Tracy leaves. I wish I could help. How long is it now since you retired? Fifteen years, Kenny. Fifteen years. So, the family man is meeting with his contact, Kenny, to get the file on John Constantine. He's young and he's nasty, Kenny warns him. There's no current trace or wanted tags on him, but he's always in the background. He did two years in Ravenscar after a highly dodgy accidental death of a miner. We saw this in the Newcastle incident, depicted in Hellblazer number 11. They don't have much on Constantine, Kenny adds. But they do have his father's address in Liverpool. Yeah, no credit cards, no social security, no inland revenue. Just an address for his father. Shouldn't think you'll have much joy there, though, Mr. Morris. This boy Constantine doesn't strike me as much of a family man. So, how about that? <laughs> yeah, and as he walks away again, Morris thinks how stupid Kenny is. How stupid the people he's been interacting with are. He puts on this charming facade... But he's really thinking that everybody's garbage. Yeah. Classic sociopath. Yeah. Now, John stops in to see Chaz, 
asks him to put a bet on a dog for him, but Chaz reminds him that he doesn't owe John any favors anymore. I just want to point out that the family man has already traveled to a different city and obtained a file on his enemy while John has managed to make it downstairs for coffee. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We learn that John is staying above the bookie where Chaz works now. Chaz quit cabs. He sold his cab at John's suggestion when John had mentioned that there would be no cabs after the apocalypse at the end of the fear machine. Right, right. And his wife is now pissed off that the world didn't end. This is a reference to Hellblazer number 21. I think that was also the last favor that made them square as well. Yeah, driving him to Scotland to resolve that story. Uh, so Chaz is letting John stay above this bookie's shop for free, but is forbidden to take John's bets. John is too lucky. Huh. It's also interesting, the name of the dog that John tries to bet on is Guilty Conscience. <laughs> Put a tenor on guilty conscience. That's pretty good. On a bus, we find Morris being nice to a single mother with two children. Their father is in prison, she reveals. Sometimes I wish I was dead. He's not the guy to say that to. Yeah. Morris holds one of the children, and his narration reveals that he's feeling so much love that he can barely resist strangling him. Love is a knife, he says. Apparently, he hates vulnerability and tries to, quote, deaden it with scars. Yeah, he also says that out loud to the wife, love is a knife, and she takes it as him sympathizing with her position. She's driven to make the difficult trip across the country every week or so to visit her husband. He's been moved from a prison near where she lived as a form of punishment. We find John leaving the National Newspaper Archive where he's been brushing up on the family man. He's been killing for 14 years, John says, but John speculates, since serial killers haven't been fashionable much longer than that, maybe he's been at it for much longer. Right, those are just the ones that the newspapers have put his name to. John also mentions that the police have never found a witness. We know from Morris's narration that he kills witnesses as a rule. So John tracks down Reed Hackett. This is the guy who was buying the souvenirs from Jerry O'Flynn. Yeah, and Hackett refers to his secretary as my little damp delight, which is the grossest thing. Hackett's the worst. <laughs> yeah, oh, he's pretty bad. John's able to bluff his way past the receptionist by dropping O'Flynn's name. And as he enters Hackett's back room, we find Hackett watching a snuff film. So we know right off he's a scumbag. Yeah, and John locks the door and bends an electrical cord and threatens him with his fish tank. He's pulling the plug on something here. Maybe, no, he's not watching a projector. He's watching a TV. I don't know. Some kind of security feature? Whatever. Yeah, I he thought definitely... he just needed the wire so that he could electrocute him with the water. Okay, okay. Yeah, I thought it was unusually convenient that Hackett had an aquarium full of electric eels here. I mean, if you want to be threatened, that's what you need. Oh, okay. You thought those were electric eels and that's what he's threatening him with. He also says, one shout and this goes over you and the TV set. So maybe that's where the electricity's going to come from. Oh, okay. That's possible as well. In any case, it's a really interesting interrogation technique. I just thought he was threatening Hackett's rare, disgusting pornography as well as Hackett. Could be. Now, he tells Hackett that he's a friend of Jerry's. You might know me as Homo Familiaris. Oh God, what do you want? You're the custodian of some relics pertaining to my life. I was intrigued to observe so ardent an admirer. Mr. O'Flynn provided the address. The bastard! He guaranteed strict anonymity! He didn't say jack shit about you, and that's how I wanted it. Hackett is basically desperately swearing that he knows nothing about Homo Familiaris, and therefore is safe to leave alive. Where do you keep your mementos? In there? Yes. Shall I come and unlock it? Do you want to see? Yes, of course. When I was a kid, the Chamber of Horrors was the last place at the fair I'd visit. Even then, it used to make me sick for looking. But I always had to go in. And I still do. What is it that excites you, Hackett? The degradation? The suffering? The utter strangeness of the minds that can perform such work? The place is full of... Serial killer memorabilia? Yeah. Do you think those are wax figures, or...? Yeah, I mean, these two on the left look like mannequins. So he obtained some mannequins or some wax statues, something like that. I don't think he's got actual bodies in here. John poses the question, Why do you hoard these trophies? Aren't you as guilty as we who take them in the field? But Hackett defends himself. 
Sure, yeah, and ain't everyone who ever read the crime reports or studied murder for a psychology degree? Everyone's fascinated. Random death. It's a mystery of life. Danger from another world. Even the police keep a black museum. I'm no different from them. You are. You don't just want to know about it. You want to watch it. To be involved. Sometimes I bet you even want to do it. But you're so scared, so you do it in your head, on your own. And that's unhealthy, isn't it? You smell, Mr. Hackett. You smell like a sick baby. Now, Hackett does give John a clue. He hands him a card, which turns out to be the family man's invitation to the serial killer's convention. From, uh, Sandman. Right. Yeah, this appeared in Sandman number 16. The family man was the guest of honor at this convention, but was missing in action. Right. Hackett thinks John's gonna kill him, which he's apparently ready for. He lines himself up over one of his mannequin bodies, excited to be a famous killer's victim. Yes! Do it now! John just walks out. I know you're going to! The family man never leaves any witnesses! <laughs> Would you prefer a more somber read? <laughs> oh, you're such a dipshit. <laughs> yeah, I think I did it right. <laughs> uh, elsewhere, we find Morris washing the blood off a white rain slicker. He has committed an unplanned murder, unable to resist the urge. We find an old man in a green shirt lying dead on the ground. Morris makes it look like a robbery so the police won't connect it to him. We start this scene with Morris cleaning up, and then we flash back to the beginning of it. Yeah, we're also told that this is the address that Kenny gave him. Kenny, his contact in the police force. Yes, and as the owner of the house opens the door at the beginning of the flashback, the family man confirms, Thomas Constantine? What of it? So Morris uses basic interview technique from his cop days to get Thomas talking, and we learn some of Thomas Constantine's backstory. He was a stevedore. During the war, there was lots of work. He got married and had a kid, John's older sister. But then an accident at work left him with one arm. For a decade, he, quote, went hungry for the kid. Then they had another, John, but his wife died in childbirth. Too big and overdue, he killed his mother. Now he's killed his father, too, Morris narrates. About the boy, the old man would say nothing more than Tainted. Waste of good air. Nothing but a cheap, flashy little crook. Morris tells Tom that John has gotten his made-up daughter pregnant, and thereby gets John's address. A family might just sort him out. I hope it works out for you, girl, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Morris opens his briefcase and gets a white rain slicker out and starts to put it on. Oh, is it raining out? Back at Hackett's, John calls in a tip to the police. It's implied he's already called the tabloids, naming Hackett as the family man. Yeah, he is trying to get a rise out of him, basically by getting the media involved. John narrates how scary it was playing the part of the family man. It felt like, in exchange for using his name, I'd given him a small part of myself to hold his hostage, and he killed it just to get the taste. He also mentions that he has to do this because he's not a good detective, which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> Right, so the police show up to haul Reed Hackett away, and knowing the family man will be looking for him, John is going to be standing in the front row of onlookers as the police make the arrest, and that the tabloids will take plenty of pictures. Right, so he gets his picture in the paper that way. Meanwhile, the family man is eating Indian food. I'm not really clear on what happens in this scene. I do want to point out that Morris thinks how he was sustained on the train ride by the fading taste of Constantine. So John was right about him killing just to get the taste. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, there's some roughs giving the Indian restaurateur trouble. Yeah, I don't even want to read that guy's line. He's such a shithead. Yeah, they refuse to pay. The restaurateur threatens them a little bit. Samuel Morris finishes his meal and leaves, and as he walks away, he hears a scream. I'm not really sure what ended up happening here. Well, as the Indian restaurateur is threatening the guys with the knife... Morris is slipping in the back behind the door that says private. So I guess we're to conclude that he is quick like a bunny sneaking into the apartment part of the building where the restaurateur lives and killing his family. Okay. Okay. So I guess the family man is sort of losing control of himself. He's committed a number of unplanned spur-of-the-moment murders here. Yeah. Although that's just my read on this scene. Maybe he's doing something else. I thought maybe we were supposed to understand that he had killed the roughs for the restaurateur, but there's no way that that happens such that he leaves and then hears a scream. Right. Yeah. 
No, I think I think he must have left something in that private area. Maybe by killing somebody or just maybe by leaving a body part there or something. Right. Back at the bookies, John confirms by the morning paper that he's in the shot of the family man being arrested. He's committed now. Not my best side. Then he hears on the morning news, multiple killings in an Asian restaurant in Peckham, identified as the work of the family man. Oh, okay, so he did kill people in that private area. Definitely killed somebody in that restaurant. Incidentally, this makes the restaurateur a witness who's still alive, right? I guess so. Constantine says, shit, he's here already! He gets a knife out and starts driving it into a loaf of bread for practice. <laughs> He's not accustomed to physical fighting. Right, so John gets scared and paranoid, having thought, as usual, that he'd have more time to make a plan for trouble before it caught up to him. He realizes that he's going to have to kill the family man, and he wonders if he can do it face to face. What's the drill with knives again? Stab and twist? Oh, hell. John practices by ruining a perfectly good loaf of bread. I'm sorry, I just love how fucked up this bread is after he messes with it, and how it was perfectly good food before. <laughs> it really kind of looks like he stabs it, and it just dissolves into crumbs. <laughs> I know. It's like a video game or something. Alright, well, the story of the family man continues, but that's the last issue for today. Right. Okay, so what did you think of this one? I mean, I think the story is developing nicely. Yeah, we had a couple of really strong scenes. We met... Constantine's father, who I think feels fairly right. He's more or less what we imagined. Mm, okay. You know, uh, a sort of surly working class guy who doesn't think much of his son. Right. He passes on his working class roots to John, but John... Well, John is not the kind of person who probably has an approving father. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't seem to be the way he lives, from what we've seen of him in the book so far. I mean, I guess the alternative portrayal of John's father would be that he's just Constantine again. Like, equally clever and sleazy. Are you saying you see this guy as clever and sleazy, or that's the alternate take of what you could have expected? I mean, John is basically, you know, a mystical con man. Right. And I would have to think, either his father probably doesn't think the world of him, or his father is another con man. Oh, okay, so you're saying that was the other option, but it's not what we see here. Right. Okay, no, but they do have things in common. They both are pretty cynical and sardonic from what we see, mm -hmm. and they both have a propensity for feeling sorry for themselves. Yeah, that's fair. Constantine's father is introduced only to kill him off in the same issue. Before Tip he's spoken, in fact. Typical of a John Constantine supporting character. Well, that's right. Did you have a most Constantine moment for this episode? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, my Constantine moment is... When John panics because he thought he had time to procrastinate between putting out the lure for the family man and coming up with a plan. Okay. I had a couple. One of them that I really liked was Anthea says, sawed off. And he says, nah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But the real, the real one, the one that I went with for my final answer was, uh, you don't have AIDS. Well, in that case, <laughs> let's go back to my place. <laughs> <laughs> Just Anthea's instant interest. Yeah, her immediate attraction to him. Well, yeah, which we learn is, is, is part of a plan. Yes, true. But nonetheless, it's yet another female character that is introduced and immediately wants to have sex with him. Yeah, true. What do you think of the device that we see in number 28? This is the second or third issue to deal with the family man, but it's the first one to give... Family Man and John equal time as they work against each other. Oh, yeah, I thought that that worked actually really well. This issue has a lot of momentum mm -hmm. to it, and that is a really kind of strong pacing element to accomplish that. I agree. Well, all right, anything else to say before we wrap up this episode? Reed Hackett is just the worst. Yeah. What does he say? What's that really creepy thing that he says? Come on in, tell me what you make of this. Is it genuine Bangkok torture snuff or a Taiwan fake? There's no sound, otherwise I'd know for sure. You can't mistake a scream with real pain in it. <sighs> I just want to take a shower after reading Hackett's scene. He's so awful. Yeah, what a douchebag. I'm glad that he thinks he's about to die. Maybe he'll go to jail. He does go to jail. Well, maybe he'll maybe he'll stay in jail. Maybe they'll find something he actually did on which to incriminate him. Maybe he'll get killed in jail for ostensibly killing kids. Oh, yeah, that's a possibility. 
All right, join us next week for The Morning of the Magician as John faces his father's death and confronts the family man. But first, we return to New Orleans with the Preacher Gang for Snakes in the Grass. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertigize. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. We have a Gmail, vertigize at gmail.com, and a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertigize. If you're using the Apple Podcasts app to listen to our show, or just anywhere you happen to be listening to our show, go ahead and leave us a positive rating, a positive review, help spread the word about the show, maybe tell a friend in real life, in meat space, if you will. <laughs> but as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Did you hear about the Poe Dameron controversy? Poe Dameron, Charles Soule controversy? Charles Soule, no. So Charles Soule is a comic book writer. He writes Poe Dameron, okay. Daredevil, he wrote Death of Wolverine, now he's writing Hunt for Wolverine. Okay. He's writing Astonishing X-Men right now. All right. There's a scene in his latest issue of Poe Dameron where Poe Dameron tells Finn that the reason he gave him the jacket is because he never really liked it anyway. And, <laughs> and that's bullshit. <laughs> the internet burned down. Yeah, and the fans are rightly, I think, upset. <laughs> well, I think I think that's fair. I mean, like, one of the things that works about that movie is that Poe and Finn immediately have a, a very good chemistry, a very strong bond of whatever sort you want to think that it is. Yeah. Um, bromance with or without tug jobs. However you prefer to... <laughs> I've never heard that word before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So, like, if you read the line as minimizing their friendship, as basically, no, you're just a rando that I gave a jacket I don't give a shit about to. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. <laughs>